Our texts this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, are Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, and Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, to chapter 6, verse 20. When we were last in Hebrews 11 two weeks ago, our focus was on the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. This morning, we find ourselves moving ahead 40 years after the crossing of the Red Sea to when God finally brought Israel to the Promised Land. As we saw when we studied Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 so many months ago, those 40 years were not, on the whole, years of faith. The same Israelites who the pastor says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, by faith crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. They would not persevere in that faith. Back in chapter 3, verse 15, the pastor quoted from Psalm 95, verse 11, as he reflected on that wilderness generation, hoping to spur his hearers onward in faith. Listen again to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. For we have come to share in Christ, the pastor says, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they, that is the generation of the Exodus, were unable to enter because of unbelief. So it is in silence that the pastor in Hebrews chapter 11 passes over the 40-year period during which those who crossed the Red Sea were wandering in the wilderness. And it's not until the entrance into Canaan that a, re a recital of the acts of faith can be resumed. To bring us forward to this new phase of Israel's history, the pastor selects the destruction of Jericho. So our focus this morning is on the events that lie behind Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. As has been our pattern in the study of Hebrews 11, we go back now to the Old Testament narrative, this time as we consider the faith of Joshua and his people. Along with those who were part of the wilderness generation, Moses has died when the book of Joshua opens. And Joshua, son of Nun, has taken over as Israel's leader. If you have your Bibles and would turn there, go to Joshua chapter 1 where God gives Joshua his charge to leadership and to faith. In chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord says, Moses, my servant, is dead. 
Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Verse 5, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Joshua was a man full of faith. Immediately we read in verses 10 and 11 of that chapter of how Joshua commanded the people to prepare to do exactly as the Lord had said. In three days' time, they would cross the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, he said. From the start, Joshua knew what would be required. He knew that to possess the land would require first conquering Jericho. It is Jericho that looms on the horizon from chapter 2 of Joshua on. Joshua 2 verse 1 recounts how Joshua sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. When Israel miraculously crossed the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 3, verse 16 of that chapter says specifically that the people passed over opposite Jericho. And when in Joshua chapter 5, verse 10, the people celebrate the Passover and for the first time eat of the produce of the land, it was on the plains of Jericho that they did so. That their time in the wilderness had ended was clear. But what's also clear is that if Israel is to claim the land, one thing above all others stands in their way, the virtually impregnable fortress city of Jericho. And so it is that we take up the narrative of Joshua chapters 5 and 6 this morning. But since it's the illumination of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, that is our ultimate aim, I propose to consider this Joshua narrative in two parts, recognizing that we will not be able to cover all the details of this text. First, in Joshua chapter 5, I want to consider faith's preparation. And then in Joshua chapter 6, I want to consider faith's power faith's preparation, and faith's power. Those will be the two headings under which we'll consider the narratives of Joshua 5 and 6 to more clearly see the pastor's point in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. We begin then with faith's preparation. Now earlier I had Mary Beth start the Joshua reading in verse 13 of chapter 5 mostly because I didn't want the reading to be too long. <laughs> but it is actually the first 12 verses of chapter 5 that I'd like us to think about for a few minutes now. So if you have your Bibles, it'll be good if you have them open to Joshua chapter 5. 
because I'd like to suggest for your thinking that the faith that would be required for Joshua and his people to overcome Jericho wouldn't have been possible apart from some essential preparations. It is clear from the start of Joshua that the Lord is not interested in giving his people victory as they enter the land apart from their trusting in him. Right? We saw that emphasis in Joshua chapter 1, where Joshua 1 verse 6 says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers. But that didn't come without conditions, because verse 7 continued this way, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. The covenant law. Yes, the Lord would give his people the land, but not apart from their being in covenant relationship with him. God's greatest concern from Joshua chapter 1 onward is that his people faithfully observe all that he had commanded them through Moses. Only when we come to chapter 5, we realize there had been a glaring omission from that obedience that had to be remedied. The people of the generation born after the Exodus needed to be circumcised. And so we read in Joshua 5 verse 2, At that time, following the crossing of the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Not a second time because they'd already been circumcised. They hadn't. That's the point. It was a second time because the whole ordinance of circumcision had to be renewed in the context of what I think was a second giving of the covenant to the entire nation. The importance of circumcision goes way back in Israel's history. According to Genesis chapter 17, every male child was to be circumcised when eight days old as an indispensable requirement for membership in God's covenant community. Genesis chapter 17 verse 13 says, So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. But evidently, that critical command had been ignored or kept on hold for an entire generation. Verse 5 says, though, verse 5 of Joshua chapter 5 says, though all the people who came out in the Exodus had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Only it wasn't optional. Obedience to the covenant law wasn't something the people could decide not to do and still go ahead knowing the covenant God's presence and power among them. Look at the result of their obedience in verses 8 and 9 of Joshua chapter 5. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. It's a fascinating verse. I think the reproach of Egypt here has to do with the 40 years of wandering that followed on their departure from Egypt. I think the point is that the people of Israel in the former generation had left Egypt circumstantially, but not spiritually, if you will. I mean, they hadn't even bothered to circumcise their children. But now there's a chance to start over. And so at Gilgal, a covenant renewal occurs, just as it would much later in the same place in Samuel's day, if you recall. And what is the evidence here in Joshua that such a renewal had taken place? Well, the people keep the Passover. Verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the point is, this generation is to be different than the last one, right? Verse 6 talks about the last one. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Not so this generation. Joshua obeys God's instruction and the whole nation is circumcised. And I submit to you that without this step of covenant obedience in chapter 5, Joshua chapter 6 wouldn't even be there. I think just as Moses himself had been nearly killed by the Lord in Exodus chapter 4 when he was on his way to Pharaoh on account of the fact that he hadn't been circumcised, so too would the people of Israel have come to destruction if they had failed to walk in covenant obedience with the Lord? I think this is more, I think this is about more than just the physical act of circumcision. It is that. But as the scriptures make clear, the physical sign of circumcision was always intended to lead to a circumcised heart that was marked by obedience to God and to his word and to the law. That's what God wants in his people. And I think it's that larger reality that's in view here in Joshua chapter 5. In calling for this new generation to be circumcised, the Lord was calling them to return to a covenant relationship with him. And they did. And so within that renewed relationship expressed by circumcision, the people of Israel were then able to keep the Passover, the same God who brought their fathers out of Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb had brought them now into the land just as he promised. And because they are now a circumcised people, the way is open for them to keep the feast. And when on the next day they then eat the fruit of the land for the first time and the manna ceases, it says, they know why. God's promise is being fulfilled. Yes, 
Jericho is on the horizon. And no, Israel was no military match for that city's fortified strength. But their faith was now prepared and they would trust the Lord for what was to come. I mean, brothers and sisters, we can't skip this. This is the first Sunday in Lent, after all. I don't think I need to work too hard to explain that Lent is a time of preparation. Among the things I pray for as your pastor is that in this season, we are all made aware of any areas in our lives where we're not walking in covenant obedience with the Lord. And that in response to his invitation to do so, we take the opportunity to repent and renew our relationship with him because the same principle applies to us today. The Lord will not give us his people victory in life or in death as individuals or as a church apart from faith apart from trusting him, apart from living in covenant obedience to him. We need faith's preparation now if we are to know and experience faith's power in the future. And so it is to faith's power that we turn our attention in the time that remains this morning. The focus shifts from Gilgal to Jericho, beginning in verse 13 of Joshua 5. You heard this part of the text read earlier this morning. As I read it, Joshua 5, verse 13 to chapter 6, verse 5, if you're looking at the text there, 5, 13 to 6, verse 5 is one literary unit, never mind the chapter division, which frankly is not helpful here. Having renewed his people's covenant obedience, Joshua has an unexpected meeting with the covenant Lord. Verse 13 of chapter 5 says Joshua was by Jericho, meaning he was in close proximity to the city for some reason. Perhaps Joshua had gone out on a secret mission to see for himself what the situation was and to plan some kind of strategy knowing what must lie ahead. We don't know why he was by Jericho, but whatever the reason for his being there, it was there that verse 13 says, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Or at least it was what appeared to Joshua at first to be a man. In actuality, Joshua was in the presence of someone much greater than a man as he soon realizes. But given his proximity to Jericho, he asks a logical question. Are you for us or for our adversaries? But how could Joshua have ever predicted the answer in verse 14? No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And there, there's a fair amount of debate as to the identity of this warrior figure. The text leaves the matter ambiguous enough that we can't be certain, but 
I am with the scholars and commentators who think Joshua here found himself in the presence of the Lord that night. I think the commander was a theophany. The appearance of Jehovah in the form of an angelic messenger. And I note three things that lead me to that conclusion. First, in verse 14, there's Joshua's response. He fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And the commander does not correct him. Second, there's the response of the commander at the end of verse 15 of Joshua 5. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Doesn't that remind you of Moses at the burning bush? It's supposed to. And third, there's then the way that this narrative continues on in chapter 6, verse 2, after the brief parenthetical comment in chapter 6, verse 1. Notice this. The end of chapter 5 has Joshua removing his sandals, ready to hear from the commander. And then the next thing we read after verse 1 of 6, chapter 6, verse 2, the next thing we read is, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. I think it's the Lord. And I think that the whole episode is meant to confirm what the Lord had been saying to Joshua from the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 5, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Chapter 1, verse 9, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I have come, says the commander of the army of the Lord. God continues to encourage his servant by demonstrating that his presence is not simply a matter of words once uttered. When God is present with his people and with us, he is present with power. As one author says, this encounter with God served to steal Joshua and arm him for the conquering of Jericho for very specific reasons. Joshua saw not only that God was with him, but that God's mystic appearance with his sword pulled from his scabbard and held ready for battle. That appearance was indelibly printed on Joshua's consciousness. God would fight for him. He knew that whatever the enemy mobilized, it would be matched and exceeded by heavenly mobilization. And of course, Joshua's encounter left him with clear instructions as to what God wanted him to do. We continue reading in verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpet. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up everyone straight before him. 
Well, there is much we could say about Joshua's and the people's faith in response to this word from the Lord that begins in verse 6. As we have several times before in Hebrews 11, we could comment on faith's obedience. There is no hesitation here. Verse 6 says immediately, So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then, using the same verb as that for when Israel was to cross the Jordan, Joshua said to the people in verse 7, Go forward. March around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And it was all done, verse 8 says, just as Joshua had commanded the people. For six days they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. And then came day 7. And verse 15 says, on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times, and at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And verse 20 says, So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. It was perhaps the greatest corporate act of faith in Israel's history, one never to be exceeded. And it would be perfectly correct for us to stress that it was because of Joshua's and his people's obedience to the specific commands of the Lord that what the Lord would, said would happen did happen. The walls of Jericho fell. Literally, the Hebrew says, the wall fell under itself. The obedience of faith could well be what the pastor intends once again for us to take away in Hebrews 11, verse 30. But I do think that I detect a slightly different emphasis here. Lots of commentators and preachers focus their attention on the so-called absurdity of the instructions that the Lord gives Joshua. And certainly it is true that from any military point of view, these instructions were foolishness. As one commentator puts it, such a bizarre military strategy. No battering ram to shatter gates, no ladders to scale walls, must have seemed unlikely to breach Jericho's stout battlements. Which is true, except that to put it that way is to somewhat miss the point, I think. From the human standpoint, of course this seems like an irrelevant and ineffective military plan. It's just that I don't think the Lord was giving Joshua ridiculous-looking military instructions because I don't think they were military instructions at all. Rather, what Joshua and Israel were instructed to do was effectively to execute an extended act of worship. 
designed to spotlight the fact that the victory at Jericho would be by God's power, not theirs. You will have noticed at least two things about the instructions given Joshua in this regard. First, you will have noticed that while the whole army was to march around the city walls one time for each of the next six days, the emphasis wasn't on the fighting men in that parade. It was on the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of Yahweh's presence, and the priests who accompanied that presence. Ten times the Ark is referred to in chapter 6. In verse 4, after indicating all the men of war were to go around the city each day, the Lord made clear what the focus would be. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And Joshua gets it because who are the first people he tells to mobilize in verse 6 following the Lord's instructions? It's not the military, it's the priests. He called the priests and said... Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Likewise, in verse 8, when the narrator describes what happens on day one, who gets mentioned first? It's again the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. It's the full title for the Ark that's used there in verse 8. Yes, the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, as verse 9 says. But the point is that it was the ark that was at the center of the procession, because verse 9 then carefully adds that the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. And finally, when verse 11 summarizes in, the, in entirety what happened on that first day, what does it say? Verse 11, so Joshua caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. It's almost as if the Israelite army is beside the point, <laughs> you see. And the same emphasis on the ark continues in verses 12 to 14 for day two as well. We won't look at all the details. Dear friends, the point is unmistakable. The people of Israel would take Jericho by faith because they understood and fully believed that it was the power of the Lord who was with them who would do it. The point is that God was with his people in their very midst to accomplish his victory for them. He wasn't remote. He wasn't at arm's length. He was leading his people by his very presence, just as he had done through all their wilderness years. And then secondly, you will have noticed, of course, the emphasis on the number seven in these verses. The pastor, in fact, picks up on that. In Hebrews 11, verse 30, he says, By faith, the walls fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Seven days. Seven times around the city on the seventh day, with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. What's the point? Well, the point is that in the scriptures, 
Seven is the number of divine perfection or completeness. Reflecting the very early chapters of Genesis where the seventh day of rest at the end of the six days of creation sets that tone. The six days circling the city are to find their completion, their culmination in the divine activity on the seventh day with its seven circuits around Jericho. It's no coincidence that the presence of the ark is heralded by seven priests, each with a ram's horn trumpet blown continually to announce the presence of the Lord. All of it culminating in a long blast after the seventh circuit on the seventh day, the sign for the great shout from the people and the collapse of the city walls. The entire event is orchestrated as a ritual procession that acknowledges the war that was being fought was Yahweh's war, you see. You might even say it was all a dramatized prayer for God to act in response to God's promise to act. An act God did. And that is faith's power, brothers and sisters. Yes, in one sense, it is, of course, correct to say the walls of Jericho fell because of the faith of Joshua and his people in response to the word of the Lord. But the emphasis of Joshua, and I think of the pastor writing Hebrews as well, is on the fact that such faith has power because it draws forth the very power of God. Israel proceeded in obedience, trusting God's word of promise, and they watched their divine champion throw down Jericho's walls. What was it Joshua said at the moment he commanded the Israelites to shout, Shout, he said, for the Lord has given you the city. The whole thing was an exercise in trusting God, brothers and sisters, believing that if he had promised and if he was present, they would indeed receive the promise as they obeyed his word when they acted by faith because of his sovereign will and irresistible power is not, for us, the lesson the same. Like the Israelites, we must attend to faith's preparation now. We must attend to our covenant relationship with the Lord, addressing areas of disobedience as the Lord circumcises our very hearts. And then, assured of God's presence with us, we are to live by faith in the face of whatever obstacles present themselves, prepared and expecting to experience faith's power, not the power we possess, which is mighty small, but the power of the Lord, which is very great. God's methods for us will not always make sense to the unbelieving world. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare 
are not of the flesh, but have divine power. Hear it? Divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Or think about Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and following, where Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. In this spiritual battle, the vital armaments are truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. And we employ them mostly as we pray and care for and share with others. All of it may not seem like a very powerful strategy, but that's because the power isn't ours. It's the Lord's. And used in obedience, this is how we will advance towards the purposes of God in our lives and in our church. Not because we'll win the battle any more than Joshua and his people did, but because God will win it for us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.